Amen. Thank you, worship team, for leading. Thanks, Dale, for leading while David is, uh, he's gone leading a group of covenant pastors on a retreat uh, this weekend. So always great to have so many gifted worship leaders. Got a deep bench. Love it. Um, We are in a sermon series studying through the book of Hebrews. And while I know that you all have committed to memory exactly every one of the sermons I've preached thus far in the series, I thought maybe, on the chance that anybody forgot, uh, I'd just do a quick review, right? So we're preaching not so much just cover to cover through the whole book, but rather we're looking at a number of the exhortations that this author wrote in their letter to a Jewish Christian congregation living somewhere around the ancient Roman Empire uh, in the capital city of Rome in the late first century A.D. And this author, we think, was actually probably a pastor writing to a congregation that they had a close pastoral relationship with. Uh, The sermon series is titled Look Up, and that was uh, certainly also the title of our first sermon where we looked at the opening verses. And the opening verses made this incredible claim. They say, for all that God has said and done for thousands of years in God's relationship with his people, Jesus is the final word, the fulfillment and completion of everything God has done in the past. And not only that, but if you want to know what God looks like, the author of the Hebrews says Jesus is the exact representation of God. So the exhortation is, in our lives where too often our eyes can get stuck on all sorts of the details of the world around us, to remember to stop and look up and remember that God is always with us. And God has revealed himself to us through Jesus. But if we're going to be people who live look up kind of lives, we got to get the second exhortation, which is sometimes we get stuck in childlike ways or childish ways in life. And we need to pursue the growth and maturity God has for us. So the second exhortation was to grow up. Everybody's favorite words to hear from a pastor to make us feel good on a Sunday morning. And if we're going to grow up, then we need to recognize that part of the reason we get stuck in immaturity is because we're not paying attention to the work of that God who is present and active and with us in our lives, but rather we get distracted by all the shiny objects around us that are so fun to look at. And as we seek to pay attention so that we might grow up in order to live more fully look-up kind of lives, we do need to recognize we live in a dangerous world. So we need to hear the warning to watch out because sin is real. It's something we can choose to do. It's something we are tempted and drawn into. It can be harmful. It is harmful to ourselves and harmful to others. So we need to watch out so that we do not fall into sin and temptation and ultimately fall into the trap of trying to find life where we know it can never be found. And one of the ways we can effectively watch out for that danger of sin is by encouraging one another daily each and every day, to be the kind of people who live our lives as faithful followers of Christ. That's where we've been so far. 
We're not, it's not necessarily chronological walking through the book, but you can definitely see how this ancient pastor crafted a sermon with a message that is trying to bring people along in their lives of faith. And today we're looking at a, a scripture from chapter 4 of the book of Hebrews. If you want to go there now, I encourage you to grab one of those red Bibles in the seat in front of you. Uh, you can open the church app on your phone. This apparently means phone. Is this in, on your phone? I don't have my phone. On your phone, uh, the church app has the sermon notes and the scriptures in there. Um, and if you would, I encourage you to read along as I read these words from Hebrews chapter 4, verses 8 through 11. And they are, there we go. All right, Hebrews 4, 8 through 11. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. So the exhortation in this scripture is make every effort to enter that rest. But as Dale already said, we just, we just shortened it a little bit. The exhortation from the pastor this morning who wrote this letter, the exhortation we're going to be considering is this. Rest. Kind of like I said to my four-year-old last night. Well, he's not quite four. He's so close. Uh, when it was time for bed, I said, Asa, go to bed. And he said, yes, Father, I will gladly go to bed. I will not get up anymore. I will just... Uh, Why did you laugh? You think that's not true? You're right. It's not true. Well, there's something about rest that's interesting to me because we as humans naturally desire it. We long for it. We crave it. We want it. We, we grumble when we don't have it and we express our desire for more of it. And yet, as is exemplified in four-year-olds around the world, we also seem to resist it. And it's that tension that I want to explore today. But the main way we're going to kind of get into that is by asking kind of the fundamental question. Uh, what is rest? And there is just so much context that the author to Hebrews put in this short passage. I can't possibly get to all of it, but we're going to try to get to three of what I think the most critical background ideas are to help us understand what is meant by this command to make every effort to enter rest. So to start, um, let's just kind of just get your brains into it. When you hear the word rest, when you hear the question, what is rest, what comes to your mind? What are the experiences? What are the circumstances? Maybe the, is there a place that comes to mind? What are the uh, memories you have that, that for you capture the idea of rest. If you're a parent of young kids, you might think a nap, like all oh, that I would really like, or, or you might think eight hours of, un heck, six hours of uninterrupted, heck, four hours of uninterrupted, right? Uh, maybe if you've been in a job for a long time and there, there's this thing on the horizon called retirement, maybe you think, oh, maybe that 
will be the thing that causes rest. Or maybe you've got adult kids and grandchildren are coming and you're thinking, oh, like, I don't know what it is, but try to capture what are the memories, what are the ideas, what are the contexts that come to mind when you hear the word rest? Our good friend Webster defines rest this way. An instance or period of relaxing or ceasing to engage in strenuous or stressful activity. A motionless state. In the world of music, it's an interval of silence for a specified duration. When it's used as a noun, a rest is an object that can be used to support something. Turns out the Greek word that um, the author of Hebrews used, uh, its, its definitions match very significantly with our English word rest. It may well have called to mind a lot of the same ideas. But in the short passage, the author named a number of Jewish background ideas that really expand, and I think some beautiful ways, what is meant by this command to rest. So the three things that we're going to look at are, first, um, Israel and the promised land. The, the first words we read were that Joshua somehow was, you know, Israel was not able to enter the rest, and so we want to enter the rest unlike ancient Israel in some way. And then the last words that we read in verses 8 through 11 were, we don't want to be disobedient like they were disobedient. So there is a clear reference to something that happened in the life of ancient Israel. Second, God and creation. The author says specifically that we should rest just like God rested on the seventh day of creation. So we're going to consider the biblical creation story as an illustration, as the foundation for understanding rest. And then finally, we're going to consider the command of God to his people, reinforced by Jesus, to be a people who practice rest in many ways, but specifically in the practice of what's called a weekly Sabbath. So here we go. Israel and the promised land. It's a story we've referenced just about every single week, but I've made the argument that this congregation of Jewish Jesus followers that first received this letter we call the letter to the Hebrews, they would have had all these stories deeply implanted in their hearts, in their minds. And so every reference the author makes would have brought to mind these stories that we're telling. And so here's how the story goes. I'll, I'll summarize just to help it get more into our minds. God made a promise to Abraham and said, Abraham, I'm going to make you into a great nation. And sure enough, a couple of kids had a couple more kids, and pretty soon, Israel became a great nation with many, many people. And they were flourishing in the land of Egypt. But then, a new pharaoh came along. And the new pharaoh didn't like the Israelites the same way that the old pharaoh did. And so the new pharaoh took the Israelites from their place of flourishing and enslaved them. And Israel suffered a long time in this horrible state of enslavement under a horrible ruler. And so they cried out to their God. And God heard their cry and said, I will send Moses to you to free you from slavery. And sure enough, 
God brought them out of slavery, brought them uh, into uh, uh, or up to Mount Sinai and said to them, now that I have freed you, I'm going to make a covenant with you. You will be my people and I will be your God. And not only that, but I'm going to give you a way to live. It's called the law. It's called the Torah. And it's the way that my people go about living life in covenant relationship with me. But it gets better, God said. Not only am I going to give you a way to live, I'm going to give you a place where you can be my people. And that place is the promised land. So, the Israelites have witnessed God acting faithfully towards them, caring for them in miraculous ways time and time again. And finally, they get right up to the edge of the promised land. After a long and kind of scary journey, finally the whole nation is gathered and they're just looking across this valley at the land that God has promised to give them that will be their land. I mean, just imagine for a second. If you had had generations of 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 your people living completely enslaved, where you had no land on your own, you had no work to do on your own, you had no freedom to do on your own, and not only have you now just been freed, but you're now looking at pastures that you can raise your own livestock, at fields that you can grow your own crops, at a space where you can build your own city, where you can say, we can now be the people God has promised we can be. I can only imagine that that would feel like an incredibly restful type of opportunity just across the way. So they're all standing there and they're looking across the valley. And they go, all right, let's, um, let's get the lay of the land. Not metaphorically, literally. So they gather 12 men, one from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. And they say, okay, your job is to head on over, do a little survey work, Come back and give us a report on this land. God said it's a land flowing with milk and honey. That it's just this land of abundance and a wonderful place to be. Go check it out. Let's see if God was right. So they go. There's some more stories. You can read the book of Exodus. Uh, You'll get all the stories. And they come back and they give report back to the leaders of Israel. And you can read it in a few places, but I'm going to read the report as it's written down in the book of Numbers, chapter 13. The spies come back, and here's what they say. We went into the land to which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. Here is its fruit. Oh, delicious. Mm. But the people who live there are powerful, and the cities are fortified and very large. And we even saw descendants of Anak there. The men who had gone up with him said, we can't attack these people. They're stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. So they're standing there. It's like, God's been faithful. God's been faithful. God's been faithful. I doubted God, but God was faithful. I doubted God, but God was faithful. Okay, we're looking at the promised land. Oh, but they're too big, and their cities are too strong, and I'm scared. Except for one guy. Caleb, in this, like, quiet, almost gentle-sounding voice from what the passage says, kind of raises his hand. Caleb was one of the 12 spies. Caleb says, uh, so 
oh, Hebrews 13.30, that's not right. This is still numbers, sorry. Uh, then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, we should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. So the people of Israel are faced with a choice. One, 11 of the 12 spies came back and said, Dad, too hard. Let's not do it. One of the 12 came back and said, uh, do you guys remember everything God's done for us over the past you know, number of years? Like, I think we can do it. And here's how the story ends in the beginning of Numbers 14. That night, all the members of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole assembly said to them, if only we had died in Egypt or in this wilderness. Uh, why is it that the Lord is bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, we should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Have we heard this before somewhere? I feel like we've heard this before somewhere, and it didn't go very well for the Israelites last time that they got scared and they grumbled and they whined, and yet they do it again. So when the author of the Hebrews says, make every effort to enter rest, make every effort to enter the rest that God is giving to you, and don't be disobedient like the Israelites were, this is the story that came to the minds of the first Jewish Jesus followers. And this is the story that should come to our minds as well. What we observed last time that the Israelites were faced with a challenging circumstance and we saw their conflicted response is something we can actually say again. Uh, in spite of God's faithfulness, when they faced the next difficult thing, Israel turned away from God instead of turning in faith towards God. So in order to understand this command to enter rest, the author brings up this story about Israel coming to the promised land, a land that God said, I will give this to you. And when they got to the edge of the promised land, they said, ooh, looks too hard. I'm not willing to try it. But what it does is it paints a little bit of a picture for us of what is really meant by rest in this context. And while we can't exactly pin it down, we know that what this means is rest has something to do with this movement from Egypt to the promised land. This, this change in life from a people who were enslaved to a people in a covenant relationship with their God. This movement from sort of wandering around in the wilderness until finally having a place where you can live out your identity as God's people. So while we think of rest often in a physical sense, getting a good night's sleep or a nap, what we have in mind here is something a little different. I, I would suggest rest is having an identity to embrace, a sense of place to be who God made you to be, and a way to live faithfully how God invites us to live. Heck, when I think about my own restlessness, 
the way that I can experience anxiety or discontent or worries that burden me, I actually think these are the three things that often come to mind. I experience restlessness when I'm uncertain about who I am or whose I am. I experience restlessness when I feel like I'm out of place or in the wrong place. I experience restlessness when I feel like I don't know what I should do, whether in a specific circumstance or in general in my life. And the story of the Israelites in the promised land says, not only does God promise to give us a place for rest, he promises that he will be our God and we can be his people. And embracing all of that is central to what it means to embrace the gift of rest that God gives us. And yet again, just like four-year-olds at bedtime, Israel is standing looking at the gift of rest that God has given them, and they're resistant to it. Our second background, which the author kind of just weaves almost seamlessly right into the first, our second background is the idea that God is the God who created And God spent six days doing the work of creation, and then on the seventh day, rested. Now, for many of us, if you uh, sort of are are pretty familiar with the biblical creation story, maybe you heard it in Sunday school as a kid, maybe you've heard pastors preach about it, one of the things that can often happen is a story can become so familiar that some of its significance can become lost on us. So what I want to spend just a minute doing is comparing the biblical creation story to a couple other ancient creation stories in order to highlight just how profoundly different Scripture's image of who God is and how God created, how profoundly different that is. I'm going to look at um, a creation myth from ancient Norse mythology. Um, Think sort of Five to 800 AD, Icelandic pagan seafaring violent men, sometimes called Vikings, but that's maybe not the most accurate term. I digress. I'm going to look at a Norse creation myth, and I'm going to look at a short bit of ancient Greek creation mythology. And here's what we're going to find. A lot of creation stories are really gruesome. And They capture an idea of who God is that is radically different from the Bible story. So first, um, Norse mythology, uh, and if if you have a queasy stomach, I'm sorry, but this is is like history and literature. This is like good stuff, right? Here we go. Um, Here's how some ancient people understood creation. Ymir was a frost giant, but not a god, and eventually he turned evil. After a struggle between the giant and the young gods, Bor's son, three sons, killed Ymir. So much blood flowed from his wounds that all the frost giants were drowned, but one who survived by building an ark for himself and his family. Bor's sons dragged Ymir's immense body to the center of Gnungagap. <laughs> Thank you. That was good. Such a good word. Uh, and from him... They made the earth. 
Ymir's blood became the sea. His bones became the rocks and crags. And his hair became the trees. Bor's sons took Ymir's skull. And with it, they made the sky. And in it, they fixed sparks and molten slag from Muspel to make the stars. And other sparks they set Ah, next slide. And other sparks they set to move in paths just below the sky. (laughs) They threw Ymir's brains into the sky and made the clouds. The earth is a disk, and they set up Ymir's eyelashes to keep the giants at the edges of that disk. Let's just compare, just kind of like let the vibe of that creation story just kind of like, hmm... Mm, Okay, okay, what does this say about the lives those people lived? What does this say about their understanding of who God, what kind of a God created the universe? It's creation out of death and violence and destruction. Let's compare that with the beginning of the Genesis creation account. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first I can't help but notice the contrast. Scripture says that creation happens as an expression of order, not as a result of chaos. As an expression of God's goodness and his desire to create something good, not as an inevitable result of evil or violence. Creation is something beautiful. It's not simply what happens after destruction. Second um, contrast, uh, in Greek mythology, um, there's uh, a titan whose name is Atlas. This is not a real picture of Atlas. This is just a picture of a statue, just for the record. And the story goes that Atlas was a titan, and Atlas led a great army of titans to attack the gods, so as to win ownership of heaven. And when the gods defeated the Titans, they punished Atlas by creating the earth and forcing Atlas to hold it upon his shoulders for all time and eternity. In a sense, in this story, creation is part of a punishment plan for some mean titans. And you can see in Greek mythology all of these ways that the gods and the titans and all these other beings are just constantly fighting and bickering and battling and endlessly at war with one another. But again, we contrast that with the creation story, uh, this one from the beginning of Genesis chapter 2. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So, on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating 
that he had done. So we see that creation is not only an expression of beauty, but has inherent in it this idea of rest instead of endless toil. Creation is God's gracious gift and its expression of God's goodness. Every single day God created it ended by saying, and it was good. It's not some sort of a punishment for wickedness or some sort of a consequence of violence, but rather rest is a gift God gives and it's inherent to the goodness of creation. Which is why God said to Israel when teaching them on Mount Sinai how to live in God's ways as God's people, God said, keep the Sabbath, recognizing that it's holy. For six days God worked, and on the seventh he rested. So also we must have regular rhythms of rest in our lives. Which is why still to this day, people in churches who are trying to faithfully follow Christ engage in some form of practicing Sabbath of saying, if God could work for six days and rest on a seventh, how can I intentionally choose to incorporate regular rhythms of rest into my life? I work hard and I rest hard. Why? Because when we rest, we do what God does. So as always, we ask, okay, the command is to make every effort to work hard at entering rest. Why? Because it's a command God gives. Because it's who God is. Because it's a gift God has been giving to his people and begging them to accept from generations past and still begging us to accept today. And so we ask ourselves, what's your move going to be? And as I was thinking about this, it it struck me. That what we observed in ancient Israel, what I joked about with four-year-olds around the world, in fact, that that, that there's this tension between rest is something we want and yet we seem to resist it, um, that seems to continue to show up in all sorts of ways still in our world and in our lives today. I found a book uh, that I was skimming. I don't know if if I would recommend the book, but it was interesting, uh, called The Five Promises of Technology. Technology promises speed, scale, spread, smarts, and asynchrony. I can get more done in less time, and my computer can work even while I'm sleeping. The idea is if we can deploy technology appropriately, we should be able to accomplish all we need to do in fewer hours and have all the time in the world to rest. A man named John Maynard Keynes, the father of modern economics, he wrote a paper called Economic Possibilities for Our Grandchildren back in 1930. He predicted that by the year 2030, The average work week in a modernized, technologically advanced world, the average work week would be 15 hours a week. That's great. Another guy, Rutger Bregman, wrote an essay, Utopia for Realists, in which he predicted the work week will perpetually become shorter and shorter over time. 
It's laughable. It's like, okay, so I did, and then I found a, let's see, I found a Gallup poll. I didn't put them on the slide, but I, I, put a, I found a Gallup poll from 2014 saying that the average American work, work week in 2014 was 47 hours a week. That was the average. A 2022 poll said that the average work week Monday to Friday is now about 47 hours and the average American works another 10 hours on the weekend. And then, of course, as if that's not enough to sort of debate, okay, John Maynard Keynes, you, your predictions were clearly a little bit off. Um, we have people like Elon Musk, who I've heard bragging in multiple contexts, um, if your competitor works 60 hours a week, this is my Elon Musk voice, apparently, all you have to do is work 120 hours a week, and you'll get the same amount of work done in half the time. And he regularly boasts that he will work 100 to 120 hours a week, and his employees will also. It's like we love rest. We long for rest. We, we see the good in it. We'll even affirm, yes, God made the Sabbath and blessed it and told us to rest, and yet we seem to be addicted to working more. It's like we create this technology and it's amazing because I've got a computer in my pocket and it'll work for me while I sleep, but instead I let it cause me to work instead of sleep because now I can work anytime, anywhere. So here's the question I'd, I'd challenge us to ask. As we think about what it means, even as we've prayed together, prayed for this morning, as we Think about what does it mean to live a faithful Jesus-following life? What does it mean to say, God, God, I want to go where you go. I want to grow how you're calling me to grow. I want to live the life you're leading me to live. And we think about that in the context of our work life. We think about that in the context of our family and of our other relationships. We think about that in the context of our faith. And hopefully this is all integrated. As we think about living a faithful God-following life, where does rest fit into our definition of success. I know for me, I often think about things like productivity or efficiency or excellence as things that naturally fit into a definition of success. Am I willing to say that when I have rested, then I have been successful? Do you, do you celebrate when you have successfully rested? I know for me, and I wouldn't be surprised if it's true for many of us as well, more often than not, or at least more often than I would like to be, when I'm truly resting, I'm giving myself space. I've taken all my work and I've set it down and I said, God worked for six days and he stopped, so I'm going to stop. I feel anxious. I feel uncomfortable. I feel like maybe I'm doing something wrong or maybe I'm letting someone down. And if that continues to be true and I leave it unchecked, the only conclusion I can really make is that, like Dale said earlier, maybe I don't trust God. The way Peter Scazzaro said it in his book, Emotionally Healthy Discipleship, he said, God invites us to embrace God's gift of limits. To take seriously, God, what's the work you've put me for me to do? And I'm going to do that, and I'm going to give my all to do good work. And then I'm going to recognize 
When the time has come to stop, to shut the computer, to put down the paper, and to say, I am going to be like God by stopping and resting. As he did and as he commands us to do as well. Would you pray with me? God, we've acknowledged that we can be such busy and anxious people. People who long for rest, who, who dream about rest, who, who, who desire more rest, and yet when, when it's offered to us, somehow we, we resist it. We, we don't let ourselves fully receive it or embrace it. Or if we do, we even feel bad about it. And in your infinite wisdom, God, you recognize that tendency in humanity from ages past and across cultures today. And so you command us to rest. That when we rest, we're doing what you do. We're joining you in your work. That when we rest, we're worshiping you and we're saying we trust you. That we're your people living your ways. When we rest, we catch a glimpse of how you've created us to live. Lives that have balance between the work you call us to do and the rest you command us to receive. Help us to do that. Today, in the weeks, in the months ahead, help us to become people who learn what it is to make every effort to enter your rest. And we pray this in your precious name, Jesus. Amen.